Hello, everyone. It's Ricardo, and here's the podcast lineup for Popping Collars in May 2021. On the flagship Popping Collars podcast, Betsy, Greg, Liz, and I are talking about portrayals of mental health in popular culture. And Greg has an interview with director Ryan Daniel Dobson about his new movie, Hosea. Hear what went into making this updated take on an ancient story. Just when Betsy and Greg thought they were out, Going On 30 has pulled them back in. This month, like the Mafia, they discuss the finale of the Corleone saga in The Godfather Part 3. Children may be looking forward to summer break, but the Sacred Six is going back to school with the episode Boys of Summer. Special guest Eric Matoyer discusses this pivotal episode of The Wire. Finally, the PC Book Club is back with its regular hosts. Liz and I give our picks for what you're going to want to be reading on the beach during your next vacation. Thanks for listening and keep those collars popped. My name is Greg Knight. I occasionally have conversations with pop culture creators. This is one of those. So welcome. Have a seat. Get comfortable. Settle in. This month, I got the chance to talk to Ryan Daniel Dobson, the writer and director of a film called Hosea. Letterboxd.com says this movie is a modern-day retelling of an ancient story through the eyes of its forgotten female character. I'll tell you that it's not often you see an updated take on the text of a minor prophet. Hosea is a pretty tough look at addiction, human trafficking, art, and salvation. But in the center of the screen is a tremendous performance by Camille Rowe, who stars as Kate. So what inspired this story? Find out as we go under the stole with Ryan Daniel Dobson. But first... Here's the trailer. Do you ever think about love? What do you think it feels like? What's wrong? I'm moving. But I'll come back? I promise. Kate. Kate! Kate, I'm sorry it took me so long to come back. You stopped writing. And you stopped responding. You don't know I what do. my life is like. I'm not what you want. Baby, I'm sorry. Do you remember when I said we were meant to be? Do you believe me? Do you think you're going to be? 
can't you just let some things be good? Where do you get to decide what's good? I'm saying that we are meant to be. You don't know that! I felt it! No! Do you ever think about love? What do you think it feels like? I'm just curious, like, where are you right now? Are you in California? I'm in my garage. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm in Los Angeles. We actually are getting ready to move here in about a month. We're going to be moving to Seattle with the rest of the world, apparently. Oh, wow. Uh, where, and you're in Florida, right? We are, yeah, down in uh, uh, Palm Beach area. Um, so just by way, as a way of introducing yourself, like, I don't want you to have to go through, like, your entire life story. <laughs> so a way of, like, uh, uh, telling our audience who you are. But, like, I'm, I think the best way that I've found to come at this question is, like, what's the thing that happened? Like, what's the story that happened in your life that made you think, this is what I want to do? I want to make movies. I want to tell stories. Like, this is, this is my calling in the world. That's a great question. I was studying theology. I was studying to be a pastor at a Nazarene university in Oklahoma. And um, I was at a stage where I was, I wasn't sure I wanted to be in full-time ministry. I don't know if you know about this whole time, full-time ministry thing, but it's kind of a bum deal sometimes. Are you familiar with that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Church people can be kind of crazy and manipulative. And I had, I'd been working as an intern uh, during college and I had sort of, you know, seen behind the curtain uh, and been like, oh, wait. Uh, but so I was in the middle of sort of asking that question. And I started working at an Episcopal K through 12 school in Oklahoma city as the assistant chaplain there, which was great. But simultaneously I was doing acting, I was doing Shakespeare and I was really falling in love with um, storytelling as a medium, both in on stage and in movies and television. So right around that time, I went and saw the movie Big Fish. Have you ever seen that film? Yeah, you yeah, and McGregor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so my my wife and I, a uh, young couple, went and saw this movie at a, a theater there in Oklahoma City. And it just there was something about what that movie was doing in terms of, I guess for people who haven't seen it, it's at its core, it's asking questions about how we think about truth, right? Like truth with a small T versus truth with a capital T. And, and sort of the thematic question is if I, if I tell you, I caught a fish that's this big, when in reality, it's this big at what does my story stop being truthful? Uh, and because of, because of my sort of move from a very conservative space that had very specific understandings of what scripture did and how it functioned in our lives, then coming into academia and having to address some of the problems with my worldview, I was just right at the epicenter of struggling with some of those questions. And that movie stuck its finger in my chest and pressed on something inside of me. And just, I came apart, Greg. I mean, just completely yeah. came apart. I was so affected by that movie. I couldn't drive home. I, I had to pull over because just tears wow. in my face that I which is kind of funny to say, right? Cause like, it's a, it's a good movie. It's not, it's not an amazing movie, but there's something about that, that movie at that moment in my life. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, my goodness, like if story can affect me in this way, what would it be like to get to uh, participate in telling a story in a way that could affect others in that way? So that was right. probably the, the fulcrum point for me and going, Oh, I, th I think I might actually want to do this. So you grew up in Oklahoma? So where you were born? In I, grew up in, I grew up in Southern Colorado in a little one horse town um, in Colorado. And then 
when I, I went to college to, uh, to Nazarene University in Oklahoma. So your life experience is really helping me identify like how you got to a project like Hosea. Because <laughs> it's yeah, right. <laughs> well, I was talking, I was that, talking with some of the co-hosts, and I was like, I'm interviewing a guy who made a movie about maybe the weirdest book of prophet <laughs> book of the prophets that you could possibly make a movie about, right? I was uh, again in college, um, <clears throat> and I was really just starting to sort of address these discrepancies with how I had treated scripture as a child, which I know we all go through. I mean, that's just sort of the structure of maturing in faith. But I started to become very fascinated in in terms of exegetical approach to scripture with rethinking what it was like for these real people, the historical setting. Uh, And I had this Greek professor who was the first person to introduce these ideas to me. And I remember him saying in, in kind of teaching us about the search for the historical Jesus, asking the question, have you ever considered that maybe Jesus was bald or that Jesus walked with a limp? And I was like, that's not possible. Like you, I've, I've seen paintings in my Sunday school that show you had a gorgeous head of hair. Uh, And so I started to ask some of those same questions about all these other passages. And right around that time, I went to a school that where we were required to go to chapel uh, and someone was preaching on Hosea in this way that I had heard so many times before that was very normal to me, where Hosea represents God sort of implicitly, then he's an amazing husband and a great father and, you know, loved, loved just excessively and unconditionally. And Gomer represents uh, sort of our human depravity or the Freudian id, you know, just driven by her appetites and, and is loved and sort of brought into this home. But then because she, can't control herself, uh, leaves and, and sells her body for sex. And for the first time, I kind of went, those don't sound like real people to me. Um, right. that, that I just don't know a marriage that, I mean, or any human relationship that's that uh, two-dimensional. And so that just started me kind of circling back over and over again to the story to think, man, what are this, what would the circumstances actually have been like? Not that the allegory doesn't matter. And the, of course, the, what this book of Hosea is doing in the larger arc of scripture I, I don't think that that's necessarily affected by us asking these questions, but that it is kind of valuable for us to say, well, I mean, why would a person leave a marriage? Maybe their spouse was kind of abusive and mean, or maybe their identity was so deeply rooted in where they came from that it's not as simple as someone just being, look, I love you now. You should be different. Uh, and then if that's true, sort of the next logical step is, well, what does that actually have to say about us? If, if we are then to look at these people in this biblical story with more complexity, it might actually really help us in our complex lives to not see it two-dimensionally. And so I just found myself rotating over and over around the story. And then Suzanne Watson, one of the producers on the movie is a person I've been friends with for a long time. And she had similar ideas specifically about this story. The story has been used in certain ways that we felt dissatisfied with because we felt like it didn't address some of the realities of human trafficking and things like that. So we wanted to make a movie that did a little better job of that. You know, you work with enough talented people who are very exceptional at the task that they're hired to do. And then part of the miracle of a film is that once you put all those things together, sort of it becomes the, the value is higher than the sum of its parts. And somehow you come out with a story, which is yeah. pretty me. Speaking of working with talented people, can we talk about Camille for a second? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk. About I mean, her. she's great. She's awesome. Yeah. So she's the star of your film. Yeah, Camille, so when we had 
we were in the stage of casting here in Los Angeles. And I think it's tough when you put out sort of a, a breakdown on a character like this, because when people read that she's a call girl, they have a very specific picture in their mind. And, you know, that that's kind of where our casting was full of. And Camille came in, just sort of rolled in like a totally normal person. And we really wanted, there are so many choices all through the process that hopefully show up in the film to make Kate feel very close to the audience. We, I wanted to do everything we could to not make it feel like this story were existing someplace other than where the audience is to draw them close to the reality. And Camille um, just had this delivery that just felt so like it just suited her. It just fit right on her, like a, you know, a comfortable t-shirt. Uh, she's French, which is kind of amazing because I could not, I did not pick up any of her accent mm -hmm. uh, and um, kind of wonderful to sort of know that she's able to, um, sort of move through spaces, even, even dialects or accents that comfortably, but yeah, she was amazing to work with. She did a great job. Um, I'm just curious, like as a director, you're working with an actress who, I mean, she's got a lot, she's got a lot of facial stuff because the camera's like right up on her a lot of the time in this movie. Yeah. And she does like a lot of subtle stuff, right? So a lot of like look downs, a lot of lookups. Um, when is she going to pull the camera up to her face? When is she going to bring it down? Like she's conveying a lot with just sort of flicks of her eyes and stuff like that. Do you just let her, let her go? Are you, are you giving her direction that you're looking for something in particular? Or are you just like, you know what? She's got a handle on this. Let's just let her, let her do her thing. Well, she for sure has a natural proclivity for that. I mean, she could read the phone book and you know, the camera just sit her sit there and watch her do it. And it would be interesting. I think with, most actors, not all of them, one of the main jobs of the director is just in real time editor, just to say, hey, like you just being there and having the feeling is enough. You don't have to add more to it. And thankfully, when she has feelings, uh, those come through in such small, nuanced ways that my job ends up being relatively easy because it doesn't require a lot of editing. Why, you know, I think one of the interesting experiences for me in terms of the movie is uh, I have very specific favorite parts of the film that probably no one else ever even notices. But there's a scene uh, for those people who haven't seen the movie. Uh, Kate is our Gomer character. She has a relationship with a, a man running a gallery named Andrew. And it's kind of one of the only healthy relationships that give her safe space in the film. And there's a scene when she's coming to Andrew and showing him something that she has. And the camera just rests on her while we just, all we do is we watch her watch him react to something she's made. So mm -hmm. she doesn't have any lines at all. The lines are the other actors. The line is not on him while he's saying those lines. The, the or Sorry, the camera's not on him while he's saying the lines. The camera is on her listening to him. And it's my favorite because you can just see inside of her eyes, the sort of hope uh, that the nervousness that she's not going to be accepted, the worry that her art isn't any good. And all that just happens while she's sitting there listening to another actor speak. So for me as the director, I just find absolute delight in those moments yeah. of seeing uh, an actor feel exactly what the character is feeling in that space. And she's exceptional at that. I was just going to say, I probably should offer a disclaimer here to point out that, uh, Again, I'm, I wrote and directed the film, but there are 
all kinds of people that worked on this movie, and I'm speaking specifically from my perspective. A lot of people worked on the film. The majority of people worked on the film, I think, would say they're very proud of it, but they don't consider themselves people of faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's awesome. That's part of what making a movie in this collaborative art form is like. So when I speak about the relationship of the movie to scripture, sort of what I think it's doing or what it can do in terms of conversations we're having about these things, that's very specifically my perspective. That's actually helpful for my transition because (laughs) I I knew that. And I I was going to talk about your movie as a quote unquote religious movie, right? Like if you slap up a name like Hosea on the front of this thing, like there's all kinds of there's baggage that you're bringing into the room. That's that all of a sudden it's like, wait, am I setting myself up for a pure flicks movie? Am I setting myself up for something like, what is this? Right. Is this going to, have an agenda or not. I think a lay person sees when they see quote unquote religious movies or movies with religious themes is I'm being sold something, man. Oh, you just hit the nail on the head. Uh, There's so many, there's so many things here. Um, I think I've come to the conclusion that it's unavoidable that there's, we're so mired in a little bit of a, just a binary way of thinking about, art as it relates to faith, that I, I would love it if Hosea was one of the one of the films that starts to try and, you know, make cracks in that concrete way of thinking about things. I just for starters, like I hate the term Christian film or right. uh, you know, uh faith film. Uh I know other people have done wonderful writing about this, but uh I there's a writer named Alyssa Wilkinson and she wrote this essay once, uh, I think it was in Christianity Today about uh, you know, a film cannot take the Eucharist. It can't believe in something. It can't right. be Christian. It can proselytize people. It can be propaganda of some form. It certainly can do that, but it can't be Christian. So I have all kinds of issues with terminology, but I understand that we have to use those terms sometimes because it's sort of a shorthand way for us to address the fact that the film deals with some component of faith or has source material that's related to faith. And I can't totally fight that. Uh, when it comes to the title of Hosea, we went back and forth on that for years and years and had this long list of all these other very indie sounding titles uh, that all probably would have been fine for the film. But the problem, the, the central problem that was really key to me was that I think there's a danger in hiding from the audience what the source material is, because if we do that, there's a lot of people that will watch the movie and go, oh, Okay. Like it's a movie about a woman who's been trafficked and a guy who kind of wants her to be able to get out of that space. And it's, but there's a, a, an entire additional level or layer of conversation that the film wants to invite people to about how we use sacred text, how we flatten those texts, what that means then for us when we reapply it to our own lives or the way we victim shame or victim blame people because of the way we use those texts, just on and on and on. There's all these applications that the film wants to draw people into those conversations that they won't have unless they understand that there's this other thing going on. So we ended up deciding to keep the title, but the end result, Greg, is that you are exactly right. I do end up oftentimes trying to make sure people understand that this is not the kind of film that they think it is. Which is honestly, just practically, if people watch our 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 trailer, which is a beautiful trailer that I'm very proud of, um, it has the fact that the movie's rated R emblazoned on the front of it. Because part of that is we want to make sure people aren't surprised by it, that we they don't sit down to watch it with their kids, 
come to find out there's some stories in the Bible that pro- like maybe aren't kid material. People need to age into a little bit. Uh, but Thank also, be- yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a Sunday school teacher, I can tell you it is a problematic text. A lot of the time. Yeah. Well, there are all kinds of those. I mean, we paint Noah's Ark on our Sunday school kids nurseries. Um, but you know what? If I made a movie about that and showed all these people drowning, like you, people would experience it a little differently than the. There's a reason. Time. Yeah, there's a reason it's an Aronofsky movie that it's yeah, like exactly. totally messed up. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I hate the term genre bending, but because we're trying to push against some people's preconceived notions about the movie, no matter what we are, we are dealing with some of those questions. I mean, it's tough. Like I can imagine because it's almost as if there's a segment that owns the space and it's like, you're, you're just, you're just trying to make your film, but you're walking into the segment that feels like they own the space. Right. And so it's like, but no, wait, this is this is the story that we're trying to tell. And yeah, this is and our source text, you know. Owning the space is a really great phrase for it because what people often, I think uh, people who don't work in the industry, it's easy for them to forget is that movies are a business more so even than you could say something like music. I think music that deals with faith that has any kind of links to Christianity has really struggled with a similar arc, right? Of sort of in the eighties and nineties, sort of just doing this imitation version of like secular artists, except with like more Jesus in it. Um, and, uh, and sort of arriving at a place, I think where there's some really amazing music coming from people who might consider themselves to be people of faith and the music might deal with issues of faith, but it also isn't like sort of necessary for our participation or enjoyment in music. It can be art for art's sake. Films and TV are behind that curve a little bit, but part of the reason they're behind the curve is because it takes so much freaking money to make them. And then it only makes sense to make them if people will then go buy them. You're essentially, you're starting a small business. You know, we essentially started a small business. I've likened it before. It's like, we opened a cupcake shop. We now have all these cupcakes in the window and people need to come buy the cupcakes or our business shuts down. And then other investors later are going to be like, no, I'm not opening a cupcake shop. That cupcake shop totally failed. So it is it is a space that gets owned because movies get made that are in, you know, again, proselytizing or they're sort of, they're Christian in the sense that people don't watch them because they're good movies. Like, so you might, you and I might go watch WandaVision because we've heard people talking about it. And we're like, oh my gosh, we need to check this out. Like apparently the quality is really high and the storytelling is amazing. People choose to go watch whatever God's not dead or fireproof because they're making a, a missional statement and sort mm-hmm. of telling Hollywood and they're, they're doing it not because they heard the films particularly good, but for a different set of reasons, but the, the movies make a bunch of money. And so then they keep getting made. Right. And it, it that's not going to change uh, in terms of the business model until other people show that there's another version that can be successful. Right. That there's, there's an indie, there's an indie film here too. Yeah. Because, you know, you're a hundred percent right about the business end of this. You know, the, the top grossing R rated movie in America is the passion of the Christ, which isn't a movie. It's a religious experience, right. Yeah. <laughs> for, for the people that attended those. Right. So so that's what you're up against whenever you enter this space. Yeah. I think people's viewing habits are changing a little bit. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we have a lot of closet game of Thrones watchers. Like they wouldn't admit it to their pastor, but they were totally watching game of Thrones. Um, 
I think part of the resistance that I experienced in my community early on to art that wasn't quote unquote Christian was because there was sort of this perception that a movie needed to represent the way the world ought to be. So if it had say profanity in it, because we are people who might not use profanity, therefore we are not supposed to watch movies with profanity in it. And I think people have started to realize that that's not, that a movie is actually just depicting a portion of the world. And if that portion of the world, just sticking with the theme, has people like our pimp character in Hosea who come from a very dark space, it would be inaccurate and unfaithful to not represent them in a in a you know a direct way that would include things like profanity. And so, but I think people are a little less scared by that and maybe even less scared by it than they were when I started writing the script. So that's been encouraging. Uh, and then to go even a step further, I've been surprised by uh, folks in my life or even just people who've reached out who come from sort of a, a different spectrum of the uh, of religious faith than I do, who experienced things that this film depicts. And especially there's we can get more into this, but there's no question that women experience this movie in a particular way that men do not. That's a, I, I recognize that I'm making gross generalization that there will be people who are, that's the exception to, but uh, there have been women who've reached out who have said, gosh, like I recognize this, right? Yeah. I recognize this. And they, uh, it's been beautiful, uh, painful, but beautiful to hear their stories. Ryan, I'm going to have to hire you because your transitions are impeccable <laughs> for, for, for this conversation. Which gets me, which then gets me to this topic of the violence that's in this movie. It's particularly like the sexual violence, the addiction violence, the self-violence, like all of that stuff. It's tough. It's tough to sit through. Like, you know, how much, as the creator of this, how far do you want to put your foot on the gas with that? I would argue that there's a ton we don't show. Like the, right. the movie actually shows very little, but because of the anticipation of those moments that is way more torturous than anything that's seen on screen. But I think it's kind of important. Not, I, I don't think it's kind of important. I think it's crucial because there's all kinds of glorification of violence that happens in cinema that I'm proud this movie does not have. Um, there are uh, two scenes with, a, with blood. Um, but even those I'm really proud of how we shot them and there are no explicit sex scenes, um, but there's, there is the tension in a lot of places of violence. Uh, and it would have been unfaithful, I think, to the nature of this world and of Gomer's story to not depict those, but we wanted to do it in a way where it wasn't, it wasn't commodifying the violence or the sex. And this gets into the gender issue in particular, which is part of the reason that I wish, uh, I, I guess for the listeners, you did a really wonderful job of trying to get more of the filmmaking team on. I am uh, the writer director, but the the other two filmmakers on the movie are Averill Speaks and Suzanne Watson. Um, I'm the only male uh, on the sort of larger filmmaking team at the top of the uh, the ticket on this movie. Our cinematographer is a woman. And so that was all very intentional in the structuring of this movie because we're telling a story about a woman who's commodified by men. There's a danger for me as a filmmaker, as the writer director, and so we collectively were having many conversations along the way of sort of saying, how can we be careful about the way that I, Ryan, might bring a particular perspective to the story that's not 
uh, what Kate's experience would be. Mm-hmm. And so that, that relates to how violence and sex are, are a part of the story, but then how they're depicted on screen. Trying not to spoil too many things because I hope people watch the movie, but there's a part of Kate's uh, experience that has to do with non-suicidal self-injury. And there's a part in the movie where that the fullness of that self-injury is revealed on her body. And so uh, Arlene, the cinematographer, was in the room. We, we were shooting in this little bathroom, uh, shooting scene, and it's just her and Camille. So Camille's in the, the actors in the room and the cinematographer and, and uh, the cinematographer was running cameras, just the two of them. And I'm outside at what we call Video Village at the monitors. And I can heal, hear Arlene yelling at me and sets are very tense. Like they're just, I'm a calm person who just, I'm an Enneagram seven. Like I want everybody to be happy all the time, right. but people just scream at each other, which is really hard for me. So Arlene's just screaming at me and I go racing in there. We're trying to get this thing shot. I'm like, what? She goes, I'm very uncomfortable with this shot, with this shot I had directed her to do. And I'm like, why? She was like, you're basically asking me to just like look up and down her body. That's like such a man thing. And I was just like, oh, she's totally right. She is absolutely right. That is what I was doing in this moment. And I was so thankful for her voice in that moment because it's not what I was after. I did not want the audience to experience the feeling of like looking at this woman in an objectified way. I wanted to execute a moment where we're realizing the extent of her pain And I needed Arlene's voice to be there to help me think through what that looked like on screen to recognize the flaws in my own perspective so that we weren't glorifying it or commodifying her pain and, and retreat that moment and how we shot it. Uh, And that, that wasn't the only time that happened either in the storytelling process or in the shooting process. Um, let me get you out of here on this. So the conceit of our podcast is that there's more popular culture nowadays than has probably ever existed in human history. And people use popular culture to make meaning out of their lives. And that's, that's honestly what our conversations are mostly about. So, um, so one of the things that we tend to do is we pull out the old, uh, blockbuster video scenario where we each make staff picks of what it is that's been on our radar lately that we would put on our shelf and recommend for people to watch. So if you had a staff pick of anything in pop culture, movie, TV, book, whatever music, what would you put on your staff pick shelf at the blockbuster stuff? The, the first thing that popped into my mind when you said that was Ted Lasso. Have you watched Ted Lasso yet? I have not. I'm not an Apple TV guy. I don't have access to it. So I've missed it. Get, get the like, whatever the week that, you know, the free, the free week. So you can try it just so you can watch Ted Lasso and then cancel it. Um, I, it's a great show. Uh, but part, but one of the main reasons I'm interested in it beyond just that I purely enjoyed it as a, as a wonderful television show is I'm very interested in, how story is moving. So when when you think about Mad Men and Breaking Bad and sort of the this antihero, this that we're you know we're sort of spending a season watching a life unravel, sort of the questions of power and the maintenance of power and uh, and the cracks in a person. I I find myself thinking of that as kind of a particular uh, the epicenter from which all of these other shows were radiating. 
but we're living in this very different time right now. Some of that is related to the pandemic. Some of it is related to politics. And I think just people's are just maybe purely speaking for myself, a fatigue on darkness. And Ted Lasso is, um, was such a refreshing show. And I think there are a few others that are coming out like it, that it's making me wonder if we're not moving in the direction of people yearning for having someone to cheer for. So what's your staff pick? My gosh. Um, what did, Oh, I just watched a docu-series on Hulu called city. So real. You seen this okay. directed no. by a guy named Steve James. Um, it's about Chicago. It's about the mayoral race in Chicago, uh, where Lori Lightfoot was just elected back in 20. Gosh, no, it was the beginning of 2020. It was right before the pandemic when she was, elected. Oh, wow. but it, um, it starts with the shooting of Laquan McDonald, um, from 2015, uh, and the, um, the trial of the police officer who shot him and his, uh, conviction and stuff like that. And then it goes into the mayoral race from there. It's it's uh it's just a straight up it's just a, a straight up doc. It's there's no narration. It's just you know um, it's just everything's just presented as is. But it takes you to all the different neighborhoods of Chicago and how each neighborhood sort of uses its own lens to view the news and the and what's happening around them. And it's really it's really compelling. So wow, Ryan, thank you so much. For coming oh my gosh, thank you for having me. No, I love talking about this. I'm honored. Before I let you go, uh, tell our folks where they can find Hosea if they're looking for it. Yeah, so they can, if they're here in the United States, they can see it on iTunes, uh, Amazon, Google Play, Vudu. Uh, it sort of depends uh, where Hosea just came out in Latin America, where they can find it on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, a few countries in Europe, Canada. So we're, we're slowly rolling it out globally. And the other thing I would add is um, this is a movie that I hope people will watch with others. Uh, even if you can't be in the room with other people, do a Zoom viewing or ask someone to watch it around the same time as you. And then we have an amazing discussion guide that was put together by a group of just wonderful people who understand the, the questions that are being asked that really uh, help guide you through thinking about it in the aftermath. Um, there's a few reasons for that. One is just because there is some triggering content in it. And I think people who have experienced substance abuse, uh, sexual abuse, poverty, that they, I think they should go into it knowing that the content's there and then watching it with someone who they can process those things with. But for, even for people who haven't, uh, the discussion guide is particularly good at making sure the conversation afterwards is healthy and helps kind of move in in a way that's really productive. So they can find uh, that those resources on our website, which is hoseafilm.com. And then the links for all the uh, the streaming platforms that they can find the movie on are there as well. So just hoseafilm.com. Awesome. Ryan, thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me, Greg. This was awesome. Awesome.